Amazing job. Thank you all so much. So good to have a talented group of people and, and to be able to worship and have a rotation of people helping out. And I think that's kind of the feel of, of our church, isn't it? Uh, especially on this campus that there's all these things that need to get done and always different people chipping in to make those things happen. And it's just refreshing uh, to, to be a part of a community like that and like this. And so uh, now I get to do the same thing. I get to help out by preaching. And I am completely humbled that for one second any of you have a thought that you have anything to learn or any perspective to gain from me is, is completely humbling, but um, I'm excited to do so. I'm excited to just talk about today, which is the return of Jesus when he's coming back again. And so before I get started, I just want to start off, my, my daughter uh, Marley is here, she's a three-year-old, and I happen to have this, this idea, this question, um, type of, a metaphor type of thing of, if you were to ask what, here, is this, is this going to work, is this okay? Okay. If I were to ask a three-year-old, how does a tire swing work? Marley, what would, what would you say? How does a tire swing work? You don't have to look at them. Just look at me. You want to tell them? Excuse me. You want to tell them? You get to hold the microphone for 10 seconds. You want to hold it? You do. I know you do. All right. You can go back with mom. That's OK. Well, that's, this is about how this sermon is going to go today, guys. So, I asked her last night to make sure she was going to give an answer I wasn't embarrassed about, and she said, uh, you, you sit on it and somebody pushes you. And I was like, okay, good. That's a three-year-old's perspective on how a tire swing works, which is pretty basic and I, I think true, right? That's how it works. Uh, now, if hopefully uh, high school or college students are a little less shy than a three-year-old, any high school or college students that would give me a heads up on how a tire swing works from their perspective, and a little bit more about what they know about the world. Any, any high school or college students bold enough? Anyone? Anyone bold enough? What would you say, if I, in one sentence, maybe two, how a tire swing works? Oh, yeah. Okay, so there's, there's, he's talking more about the motion that goes along with it. It's kind of a circle. Not just a line, it's a circle, because it's on a pendulum, right? So yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah, uh, gravity might come into an explanation like that. We've learned physics. Hopefully in high school, college time, we're learning about physics, about centripetal force, I don't know, those kinds of things, which is exciting. You know, that's also true. Uh, he added more to it, and yet it's still true. And so what the three-year-old said is still true. And if you were to ask a physics professor, any physics professors, Darn, that would have been really cool. I would have just sat down and listened for a while. Uh, if you were to ask a physics professor, they could give you even more. They would say, uh, actually, about that, that line, that circle you were talking about, because it's a pendulum, we can actually measure with impressive accuracy how long the time period will be of that swing from beginning when we lift it up and when we let go to it going there and coming all the way back. We can measure that. We can predict almost perfectly how long that period will take. And it's, it's an easy formula, fairly easy. It's, T, which is the time period, equals 2 pi times the square root of L, which is the length of the rope, divided by G, which is gravitational force, which obviously where we are, it's 9.8 meters per second per second. And you can do it. And you can just know this, this is how long it will take based on this length of rope. That's it. It's very interesting stuff. And yet, that's still true. And that doesn't change what a high school student would say about uh, a swing. And it wouldn't change what a three-year-old would say about a, a swing. All of these things are true about that tire swing. 
And so that's kind of where we're going to start while we talk about what we're talking about today, because I, I believe it's a question or maybe a lesson in the maturation of our spiritual lives. It's hard to talk about maturity and encourage people, especially people older than me, that we all still have some maturing to do. Because as soon as I say that we have some maturing to do, we think we're being called immature, which is never fun. Uh, and so I want to, obviously, I'm, I'm starting with the tone of we're all moving in this direction. And I think as we re get into the text, as 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, we're going to read the whole thing. It's only 10 verses. It's very short. We're going to read the whole thing, and we're going to see those same layers kind of unfold as we get into it. But before we get there, I want to talk a little bit more about this, this idea. Because I think that the universe and the world and physics and all this kind of stuff for me right now, as I've told you before, I'm really into physics right now. It's just this fun hobby I've been having. Um, and the more I learn, the more amazed I am with the universe. And I think the same is true of God. The, when, when we first start with our relationship with God, or maybe we, we're learning about God, we see God in this certain perspective, this certain light. And then as we mature, we start to see it, God with even more depth. And I remember, um, gosh, uh, six, five or six years ago, maybe seven years ago, I was talking about starting a church in Iowa City. We were, we were planning it. We're moving out here. And knowing what I know now of the seven-year-ago Doug, I know what that Doug knew, and it's not much. And I look at that seven-years-ago Douglas version of me, and I think, you idiot. You didn't know anything. What were you going to teach anyone? You know, that kind of thing. And I'm sure I'm... I'm Tomorrow's my birthday. I'll be 33. Don't say happy birthday. Just give me a gift. Uh, tomorrow I'll be 33. And in another, another seven years, I'll be 40, looking back at the 33-year-old version of myself saying, you didn't know anything. And isn't that a continual thing about us and our relationship with God that we're continually moving? And I want to challenge us today. If you feel like you aren't continually looking at God going, wow, this is amazing. Stop and do that. Because the opportunities are there. Especially as we come together on a Sunday morning to hear a message, hopefully every single Sunday we should be listening and saying, whoa, that, is, that makes God even more amazing. And so as we talk about this today, I'm reminded of um, a true story, a sadly true story. I was 18 years old, right around 18 years old. I hadn't been a Christian very long. I grew up in the church, but around the age of 17, right after I was 17 years old, I, it, it clicked for me, and I went, oh my gosh, God is real. And what Jesus did for me is real, and so it all kind of rushed in, and I became this kind of baby Christian that had a lot of knowledge growing up in the church, and was just starting to connect the dots. I remember when I was about 18 years old, I had a conversation with my dad, and I'm embarrassed to even say the story, but it's true. I had this conversation with my dad. Maybe I'm not the only one that's ever had this kind of thought. Uh, but I said, Dad, I think God wants me to win the lottery. Makes sense. <laughs> and I remember my dad was like, oh, okay. Anyone else ever thought that? God wants me to win the lottery. No, I'm the only, you, come on. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and I, I was like, he's told me the numbers. I know it. I know he does. And obviously we can all laugh about that because we know that's, <laughs> we, we've heard the stories about people who win the lottery. It's probably not God suggesting I, I play the lottery. It's probably more on the other side of that, because it tends to not be a road to happiness, right, and, and to fulfillment. But in my mind, it just made sense. And I think 
that's where I started when I'm, when I'm thinking about this. And sometimes I think that we as Christians forget that maturation is a, a long and time-consuming process. Because Jesus does what he do, did what he did on Easter, you know, the celebration we just had about Easter and the atonement that happens and what happens there about when I accept Jesus into my life, it's done. My sins are forgiven. My relationship with God is wide open because of what Jesus did. There's no earning I have to do. There's no maturation of that process. It's done. And sometimes we believe that because that is so instantaneous that our maturation is instantaneous, and it is not because of my 18-year-old self as being a great example. I look at life and go, just give me the lottery, God. I've got this for you. Okay, son. We have a ways to go. Just because I've accepted Jesus and what he did on the cross and everything that East represents is true doesn't mean I really know anything more about God. It doesn't mean I actually know what God wants me to do in any situation yet. It doesn't mean that I know what God would or wouldn't allow to happen on this earth. That is a process we learn. And I'm going to go to Hebrews chapter 5 to, to speak to this a little bit because I think he gives us some great insight into it. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, the writer warns us about maturing. Verse 11, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the world, word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. This speaks to that maturity that we often ignore. Sometimes I catch myself saying things like, but you are a Christian, so you should do this. But you're a Christian, so you should not do that. But you're a Christian, so you should know better. But you're a Christian, so you should vote this way. But you're a Christian, so you shouldn't be worried about that. And we believe, much like the writer of Hebrews did, you should be here. Maybe there is like an expected reading level. Like at third grade, you should be able to read these words. This, this writer said, you should be teachers by now, but you're not. But at the same time, we don't expect complete maturation from a young person or a new Christian. And so this process is important. I know I'm laying it on thick, but I really want us to grasp this. Because in this, in Hebrews chapter 5, it actually gives us a glimpse into what moves us to maturity. And it is discerning good from evil. Good from evil in our thoughts. Good from evil in our ideas. We need to be able to discern good from evil in the interpretation of the Bible that we're reading. We need to be able to discern good from evil in the sermons that we're hearing. This is something that we need to realize more and more. We need to be able to do this. 
And I was just the other week, I'll, I'll, Fern wasn't supposed to be here, so I was, I was gonna say, I'll say it anyway because it's in my notes, he gave a fantastic sermon, now he heard that, thanks a lot for the baseball tournament being canceled or whatever. Um, but there was this, there was this moment where um, I was, I sit in the back usually because my kids are loud and they're opening those fruit snacks and it is very distracting. So I, I set them all in the back usually. And uh, I was sitting in the back and he said something and I just kind of went, I don't know if I believe that. Now, I am not up here publicly saying that Doug was preaching, you know, nothing like that. But I'm just saying, I don't know about that. I, it was a very small specific point in his sermon and it moved right along and it didn't change my opinion of how great the sermon was. But I remember thinking, huh. What, is the, what are the implications of that? And I remember looking at, forward, and there were some other people, and I noticed this, this couple uh, that were sitting in front of me. Obviously, everyone was in front of me. I was in the back. But their head went up and went, hmm, and looked at the person sitting next to them, and the person sitting next to them looked at them, and this person wrote it down. They were the same, thinking roughly the same thing probably I was, like, oh, I've never heard that before. I don't know about that. And so they were writing it down. And I just remember thinking, that's awesome. I hope that we're all like that. Right? If I say something as a 32-year-old man that's trying to teach people that are older than me and wiser than me, that have been, uh, have been through seminary, I put my foot in my mouth, Lynn, uh, Lynn, where are you? Oh, gosh, I can't find you. Um, I, the first time I met Lynn, we were talking, and he was like, Doug, have you been to seminary? I was like, no, gosh, no, I, I never want to go to seminary. He said, well, why not? I was like, Ugh. all my friends that went to seminary, that, of my group of friends that I, we were Christians together, they like... They went to seminary, and they lost the fire. They lost their faith. They'd come back like, I'm very good at my job of being a pastor, but I'd have no energy or excitement towards it. And I'm like, oh, gosh, I never want to be that. It's just horrible. And I, and I said to Lynn, how about you? And he goes, yeah, I went to seminary. I was like, oh, crud. <laughs> Sorry, you know. I, well, I can laugh about it now because I know him, um, and he's awesome. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm a young person, and I'm maturing, right? And so I hope that as you're reading this, you're like the Bereans. And I know we've spoken about it before recently, but in Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 12-ish, I'll read it here. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And verse 12 says, many of them therefore believed. Many of them, they didn't believe because they heard. They believed because they heard, and then they checked the scriptures, and then they believed. This is important for us. Because the world is filled with voices and pastors and really cool Instagram squares of beautiful scenery and amazing quotes written, it looks like, in script of a paintbrush. It's so beautiful. And if we just take those, and we don't discern if it's good or if it's not good, we're not maturing. As a church, as individuals, we must be doing this. Now, I don't take notes, so it won't offend me if you don't. I won't challenge you on that in that way, but I think this is important. Let us not be too dull to listen today. Let us not forget to discern what is good from what I say, from what is evil from what I say, and I'm, I'm not going to try, I don't think many people try to, just, to say evil, but if it's not God, it's not God. Let us examine the scriptures as we learn today about when Jesus comes back, and that's what we're about to do. So let's pray. Father, we want to lift you up this morning.
We want to hear your truth, your words, as delivered to the church in Thessalonica. God, we are eager for what you have for us as a church. We are eager for how we fit into this that we're about to read. And we are eager to grow in our relationship with you. Open up our hearts to hear. Break through any barriers that we are setting up. Break through any barriers that we don't even know are set up to stop this word from penetrating our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to start in, by the way, I just, every time I read a book of the Bible like Thessalonians, this is, we're in 2 Thessalonians, you, if you want to be a good preacher, you have to say the church, uh, the city name of Thessalonica. It's very important. It makes you sound important. I've already said it twice. Well, that's the third time. And so I just want you to know I'm good at that. <laughs> Verse 1, Paul, and Sil Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of ...of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a lot. There's only ten verses, but there's a lot packed into those ten verses. And as... ...if I were to give the, the three-year-old version of... ...that... ...I think I would take away... ...Jesus is coming back. And as Christians... ...that is a very exciting thing... As people who celebrate the birth of Jesus on Christmas, and we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus on Easter, and we live our lives thinking about Jesus and talking about Jesus and trying to be like Jesus and thanking Jesus for saving us and forgiving us and everything that, that he constantly is doing for us, we have to be looking forward to the day when he comes back in a, in a way that, that all people will see him. And we'll say, wow, that is awesome. And I think on one level we have to be there. We have to see it that way. 
because though there was some other scary stuff in there, the bottom line is this is good. And we can't lose that, that excitement, much like we can't lose the excitement of a, of a tire swing. You know, if you give a professor, a physics professor, a tire swing, I really hope he rides it a little bit because there's a lot of joy in that along with the other stuff. You could argue that this is the joy of it all, is what the three-year-old sees. And I, I would think here is the same way. <clears throat> but then there's that like high school, college age student version. And again, I'm not trying to, to say uh, anything about our maturity and your image. You're like a high school student if you believe this. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there, this, this next level I see as I'm reading this text. Maybe it's the second time I read the text to go, oh, we're talking about hell here a little bit. <laughs> We're talking about judgment. Jesus is coming back with fire. Oh, in the Old Testament, fire is usually spoken about either as the presence of God, as in a burning bush or a pillar of fire, or it's talking about God's judgment. And I think in this case, we're probably talking about God's judgment, since it says that. I... Because of uh, kind of my past and, and how I have gotten to where I am today, I was a youth pastor for a while, about six years, and I spoke with a lot of high school students and college-age students, especially in that tra transition period. I'm very sensitive to that time period, that switch from being a high school student to being a college student. And so I've always paid a lot of attention to uh, college students and their faith, and it's been important to me. And so I've, I've mentored and met with a lot of college-age students, and it's interesting seeing this kind of theme for those students. This is not unusual. And I think it, it probably comes from a lot of different places, and really we all have this at some point, but when I'm speaking to a college-age student, usually there's two types, right? Uh, I, have, I, I grew up in the church, or I, I was a Christian in high school, but then when I went to college, I realized it's my faith, not my mom and dad's faith. It's not my youth pastor's faith. It's mine, and there's a struggle there. And sometimes people just go, I don't want that anymore. And they walk away from it because they're like, that's different, that's hard, I don't want that, or whatever it is, they walk away. But then the other side, there's people who, um, when they realize that, they get excited, and they get charged up, and they think, oh, or, or maybe they're just now getting it at all. And they're saying, Jesus is real, much like I did when I was 17, 18 years old, and saying, oh my word, this is amazing. God is amazing. And what will happen is, I'll see this a lot. Turn from your wicked ways. Jesus is coming. And that attitude uh, of the reality of Jesus coming and the judgment that is coming with him is scary. And it's enough for some college-age students to say, I'm not, I'm not doing that stuff. I'm going to stay away from that stuff. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on what God wants me to do. Right? I'm sure we've all thought that. I want to stay away from sin. I want to stay away from that stuff because that's destruction. And then we start to realize it in other people. Uh-oh. You know what you're doing? You don't want to be on that side. You don't want to be doing those things. You shouldn't be doing those things. And so uh, uh, a lot of times those conversations are from a frustrated place of Christians not acting like Christians should. You come to church every Sunday, huh? Oh, well, I see you on Friday nights. You don't look like the same person with your hands raised singing to Jesus then when you're doing those other things. And we, we're, we warn other people 
And I think that's an important layer we need to see of this text. Because the word hell is a scary word. And most of us don't love telling people about hell. Because that's not what we feel is the appeal of God. We're not saying God is here to save you from hell, although he is. We're saying God is a loving God. Right? That's, what we, that's, that's why we're here. We're, we're excited about who he is. And so when we read this, it's really easy to skip over that part, but we can't. We have to hear that part too. God is coming with judgment. And yeah, I don't, I'm not excited about that. It would be a lot easier if it wasn't even true. You know, if there was some other way. If there was some other way, I think Doug said this last week or two weeks ago, if there was some other way, then why did he send Jesus to die? Makes me think there's not. Now, the, the church in Thessalonica, that's the Lord, uh, was going through persecution. They were being persecuted by the Jews. They were being persecuted by uh, the, the other people, even other people that believed in Jesus. And they were feeling very beaten down. And so when we read this from Paul, and it says, don't worry. Stay strong. Persevere. It's because they're being persecuted. And it's easy to realize in that situation why they would want justice. If you've ever truly been the recipient of in intense injustice, you want justice. And if you're not someone who is living in a place where you want justice, then consider yourself lucky you're not living in a place of total injustice. We're lucky if you're not being constantly persecuted just for what you believe. Now, that, that can take many forms. I mean, maybe you feel persecuted because the media portrays Christians in a certain way. Um, I feel persecuted on a very small level when I'm talking about, I just told you I like physics, I like science, so when I'm talking about that with somebody, it's not uncommon for them to go, wait a minute, aren't you a Christian? Do you believe in this stuff? You can't believe in that and the Bible. It says this, and you, you think this, and, you know, and they, they belittle, maybe not intentionally, maybe intentionally, and say, no, you can't have an intelligent conversation about that if you're a Christian. That's kind of persecution, you know? So maybe I do a little bit. But I'm not excited that these people might go to hell. And so I think to recognize that that is a layer is good. Now, let's also... Take another look. Because I believe we should be upset about this. Because I'm not excited that my non-believing friends will be a part of that judgment. And therefore, I want them to know the love of the Father. I want them to know the peace and forgiveness that I've experienced. And there's probably... Maybe there's more, but I, I see about three reasons that you're here today in this place, in this room. Number one, you are dragged here because you don't have a car, or you're not allowed to be left at home. I'm talking to my children, mostly your children, right? Uh, you're too young to, for me to leave you, so even if you don't want to come, too bad you're coming. Good for you. Uh, number two, you're someone who comes out of either uh, just habit or routine or maybe guilt. You know, I did something last night or last week that I feel bad about someone to come to church. Maybe I'll get rid of that guilt. Or maybe if my mom is sitting here and if I don't come and sit next to her, she'll make me feel guilty that I didn't come, but I don't know about all this stuff or I just don't believe in this stuff. And then the third group of people who come because they've experienced the love of the Father. And they want to come and sing about how amazing this, this peace is. The, the, the 
weight that's lifted up off of our shoulders. I want to sing about it. I want to get together with other people that have experienced this, and I want to talk about it. I want someone to stand up in the front and tell me stuff about how awesome God is I haven't even figured out yet. Because they're reading other books and praying about other things I haven't, that I'm not listening. Maybe I'm dull to listen, and they're not. So I want to get in, in touch with him. Tell me. What else? I want to know more about him. And I think group three knows that they want other people to experience that. Isn't that why we're here? Well, then there is an urgency because guess what? Jesus is coming. Though I don't believe that Jesus is going to come back, as it describes in Thessalonians, and he's going to go, I have this fire and this judgment. Oh, there's no one left. Everyone is in Iowa City is, uh, is a believer, is obedient to me. Well, I'll move on to the next city. I don't exactly believe that that's going to be the case, but you better believe that that's my goal. I'm thinking of my friends. I'm thinking of my family members. So then there's this other perspective, this third perspective, this perspective of, of the physics professor, right? And they're looking at it maybe from years of maturity and reading the scripture over and over and realize that there is kind of this formula that's being presented here throughout the text of the New Testament. And so I'll just reread uh, verses 11 and, and 12 from 2 Thessalonians. Because this is where it gets real. This is where the message makes sense. With this in mind, he says, we constantly pray for you. Now listen to this language. That our God may make you worthy of his calling. And that by his power, he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness. Uh, fruition is a word that we use all the time. We use uh, the fruit of this and the fruit of that and what we need to come to fruition. Just a reminder of what the Bible says about fruit. How do we grow fruit? If, you know, Jesus said the, the vine and branches thing, right? We know that. How does one grow fruit? We can't just go, let's, if we have all the, we have fructose or what is it, glucose, fructose, I don't know which one, fructose, I think, and I have water and I have these other ingredients, these vitamins and minerals, let me make fruit. We can't do that. The only way to make fruit is to be connected to the vine, right? I want to hear you, not to, I know you like to give me the, the arms folded and the hands in the pocket death stare when I speak. I know, I don't want to take that away from you. But I want to hear you, if you agree with this, and no pressure. I do have someone in the back taking names. If you believe this, I want to hear you say yes or amen or woohoo or something. <clears throat> do you believe that the only way to grow fruit is to be connected to God. Yes. Wow, that's a big deal. It took me years, it took me a failed church, a failed church plant to discover what you just said yes to. Because I had all the ingredients, I had everything I needed, and I was putting it together and trying to shove it together, and I had people saying, now Doug, you can't, you can't create fruit. And I was going, yeah, yeah, I know, but I can, I'll show you. And I tried so hard, and it just doesn't work. The way we produce fruit is by being connected to the Father, and that's what he's saying here. God will make you worthy by his power. 
he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith, prompted by faith. How do we know that we're being prompted by faith and not by those cool Instagram photos or by good advice from somebody else that's not what God wants? By practicing hearing good and knowing it's not evil. That's maturity. We pray this so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of God, of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so here's the formula. We constantly are discerning the difference between good and evil. When we do that, we mature. We get better at it. We're hearing less about this idea that if I win a lottery, it'll be good. And we hear more about, you know, if I care for this person, truly care for this person. I just had a conversation two nights ago with somebody, and I said, I really want to help a friend of mine. He just needs a good job. If he had a good job, he would have the money. If he had the money, he wouldn't have all these struggles. And he said, okay, hold on. Do you really believe that money is going to solve this man's problems? I was like, well, not when you say it like that. But yeah, I did. <laughs> I kind of did think that. And he said, no, 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 no. Truth solves this man's problems. When I mature, I hear less of my own ideas. I just need to get this guy a good job. That's a good idea, right? That's a good idea. And I would hear more of God saying, he needs to know the truth. That is what he needs. That's maturity speaking. So as I mature, because I can hear good from evil, because I practice it constantly, then... Back to my formula, we show genuine love. And genuine love isn't always the easiest thing that we pe people expect. Hey, I need 100 bucks. Genuine love will give it to me. No, 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 no. We know better than that. Genuine love is truth. It's showing truth. It's, it's giving love. And when people see that genuine love, they see Jesus in us. That's that glory. Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him. People see that in you. People have said about you before, man, you're different. What is so different about you? They're seeing Jesus in you. When people see Jesus in you, they want to know Jesus. When they want to know Jesus, they get Jesus. Because he wants to know them. And when they know Jesus, they aren't under that judgment anymore that we're talking about in Thessalonians. That's a pretty simple enough equation. Yet I forget it all the time. This is our time to impact our circle. Not by trying to be something for them, not to create fruit, but by being connected to the Father and discerning good from evil. This is that third layer for me as I'm reading this and reading this and reading this and studying this and I hear this and go, oh my gosh, it is so urgent. One last thing and then I'll finish up. I just want to point this out. The first time Jesus came, the people that were looking for a Messiah were the people that Jesus had the biggest problem with. The people that knew the scriptures the best are the ones that missed the fulfillment of the scriptures in Jesus. The people that were crying out for God to stop the injustice are the people that were twisting God's words to create injustice for others. This can't be us. 
when he comes again. And the only way we prevent that is by discerning, constantly practicing, hearing good versus hearing evil. So let us, every day, by constantly listening for God's voice in the midst of so many other voices, and let us urgently reach out to those around us in faith and in love today. Because Jesus is coming back. Let's pray. Father, we want to know your voice. We want to know it better than we know any other voice. Give us your spirit. Release in us a hunger for your desires in our lives. Take away our fear of the unknown, of what a life lived for you might look like, and replace it with an excitement that comes from being in your will as a part of your movement here in Iowa City and in the world. Urge us forward in relationship with you and with each other. And as we eat this meal that we're about to eat, we ask that you bless our time together as a church, that we challenge each other, that we push each other forward, that we truly drink deep of the joy of this community, and for that joy to grow even as our community grows. We love you, Father. Amen.